This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Bonnie Christian. She is the writer of Times, CNN, The Week, uh, Politico, The Hill, Revelant Magazine, uh, Rare, and the American Conservative. She has a new book out, Flexible Faith. Bonnie, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we get into your writing, into the book, uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I, uh, I live in the Twin Cities. Um, we moved up here, my husband and I, a few years ago for me to go to seminary up here um, at Bethel University. And uh, We've stayed since. It's a, a great area and certainly a big improvement over where we were before, which was uh, the Washington, D.C. area, which I, I don't think I'd want to live there, especially now <laughs> in sort of the, the crazy political climate. Um, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, I write for a living. Um, I'm a contributing editor at The Week, um, and then I'm also a foreign policy fellow at a, a small think tank called Defense Priorities. Um, which mainly involves a lot of writing for policy topics as well, for placement at, at various outlets. Um, and uh, let's see, I'm a part of a, a Mennonite uh, community um, here in our neighborhood. That's our church. Um, and we are expecting twins this spring. So that's sort of the big news on the personal front. Yeah. As you were telling me before, if it sounds like you don't have any air in your lungs, it's because you have two lives <laughs> growing within you. So. It is, yeah. It it makes for a uh, between the the like sort of lung compression and the perpetual um, like runny nose. It it makes for a, a pretty rough uh, interviewing voice in recent months, but uh, we'll get through it hopefully. Yeah, you sound fabulous. Uh, so so walk oh, us through uh, <laughs> walk us through that sense of calling. I mean, to leave life in D.C. to go to to Minnesota. Um, what was that like? Walk us through that. Yeah, well, I knew um, I had been sort of toying with the idea of, of grad school for a while. Um, and at, at first, I, I originally was looking at like a, a journalism program um, in D.C. And it, it just like I was accepted and I was going to attend, but it just there was never any real feeling of like, you know, this is something I really need to do. Um, 
in the same way that there was when I started contemplating seminary. Um, and so I came out, we came out here to Bethel um, for a number of reasons. You know, some of it was just like real practical stuff about affordability and um, cost of living and that sort of thing. But a lot of it and what I, I really appreciated about um, Bethel is I was researching seminaries and, and this will make sense once we're, we're talking more about the book, but was that they really emphasize um, an ironic approach to theology. And, and as much as, you know, the school certainly has a theological perspective, um, welcoming and encouraging like a, a productive um, and, and fruitful and uh, not uh, dismissive or, or divisive or poisonous debate about our disagreements um, within, you know, Christian orthodoxy. And so um, that was very appealing to me. And uh, as well as the idea of, you know, digging deeper into uh, theology after having spent some years working in politics, um, which, as you may imagine, can be sort of soul-sucking. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Things seem to be fine <laughs> in the American political landscape. Absolutely. Totally, totally normal and functional this is politics all we so, have going on here. Yeah, it's all so normal. <laughs> So uh, walk us through the journey into writing, because that's kind of a, a unique facet for many people to express their vocational calling into ministry. Yeah, um, I mean, I've known since um, even even in middle school, I was writing like really, really bad stories. I think even then I would like write a story and read it and be like, you know, this isn't actually that good. Um, and so I figured out fairly early on that fiction writing was probably not going to be the writing that I was going to do. Um, but I continued to enjoy writing and um, in high school surge develop an interest in, you know, like news and current events. And so um, that sort of pushed me towards uh, the journalism field gradually and, and writing about politics. Um, and for a long time, I sort of kept the the political writing, which was the, the bulk of what I was doing, fairly separate Um from sort of like my faith and the theological side of things. And, and some of that was out of what I think is um, an appropriate caution, you know, to, because those can mix in, in very negative ways. And I didn't want to be perceived as saying like, uh, you know, my politics or the Christian politics. And, you know, this is how God wants you to, to think politically and to vote um, in sort of a, a, a negative sense like that. Um, but as time went on, I sort of realized that this was, you know, something of an artificial barrier because I was thinking about both matters of faith and politics in day-to-day in -day life, and certainly, um, you know, my faith informs my politics. And so um, going to seminary and, and starting to write more about, um, you know, things pertaining to, to God and to theology and to faith, as well as politics, and sometimes, you know, the intersection of the two, but sometimes just one or the other. Um, you know, really began to make more sense and, and to seem like uh, the writing about faith was part of the, the calling to writing um, as well. It, it was something that should be integrated, not sort of isolated and kept off to the side. Just in case you ever feel bad about your middle school writing, um, know that I just, I talk for my profession because my writing is awful. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, as a local church pastor and you preach, you're like, oh, we have a, 
actually where I am at uh, University Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, we have English professors that are in our congregation and I'll say something and they just kind of give that look like, no, you really didn't hit that one correctly. So uh, <laughs> now, Oh man, I'm always, I always say I'm grateful that like my middle school years were not in high school even as well. We're not like a time when people were, at least I was not significantly on the internet and I'm so grateful that I wasn't writing online, but like my early efforts were in composition notebooks that, you know, nobody will ever see. <laughs> Does anyone ever really wish to go back to middle school or high school? Uh, I, I think that I is think certainly the worst time I think people wish to go back to high school. Not, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anyone wants middle school again. I think some people want to go back to high school. I do not, but I think it happens. You seem like you want to name names right now. Do you want to do you want to name drop to our audience or somebody you're like, Hey, you just need to get over that high school was a long time ago. I won't, oh, I won't man. put you in that place. Never mind. Never mind. So <laughs> we have the opportunity, uh, more opportunities than ever before, um, to read news and commentary on what's going on around the world and around faith. Um, so I wonder what is the vision, uh, you hope to bring to your readers, um, and such a, I guess, unique opportunity to have so much information at our fingertips. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. And it's something I think about um, regularly, occasionally, even in like the specific context of I'll think, you know, oh, here's some, an article I'd like to write. And then I go look at, you know, like the week where I, I do um, the, the bulk of my writing and, and one of our other columnists will have already written on something that's too close and I can't write it because, you know, we'd overlap too much. Um, and so, yeah, it, with, with just the wealth of information, it, it's, it's certainly like humbling to, to recognize that there's a real sense in which none of us are offering anything super unique that like the world would miss us if we were gone and not writing anymore. Um, in terms of, uh, myself though, what I often hope to offer, especially in, um, you know, the, the pieces that I really care about most, um, especially the ones that touch on sort of the intersection of, of religion and politics, um, a lot of times has to do with talking about like how civil religion works in American society and how we don't um, maybe notice the ways that we mix up our, our faith and our politics um, in an unfortunate sense that we can sort of slip into a political idolatry. Um, and, and sort of misplace our hope that that should be in Christ, we, we can tend to misplace it in politicians or in, you know, the government in general, um, and begin to see that as the source of our security and the source of, um, you know, what sort of makes or has the potential to make the world the way that we believe it should be. Fascinating. Now, now last year, um, you released uh, your first book, uh, Flexible Faith rethinking what it means to follow Jesus today. And the book is an intersection of difficult questions about the Christian faith, such as, does God really torment people in hell forever? Are gay relationships sinful? And what's with this whole wine and bread stuff with Jesus? Okay, that was maybe <laughs> my, my translation of it. And then the questions are followed with interviews with names such as Brian Zahn, uh, Claire Stober, and Philip Gully. So tell me, what, what was going on in your faith journey that you started the process of writing a book about difficult questions? Um, you know, I, I always think of, uh, of two audiences, in one of which I would place myself in. Um, so the, the first audience would be 
uh, Christians who are going through like a season of, of doubt, deconstruction of their faith, like questioning things that they've grown up with. Um, and, and for those people, I was hoping to offer sort of, uh, you know, a very accessible um, resource to, to figure out uh, what other options are there within the historic Orthodox, like sort of span of Christianity. Because I think many people don't realize that Christians have disagreed on a lot of these big issues. And, and in many cases, we've done so for centuries. And, and disagreeing, holding one of these differing positions that I cover in a flexible faith does not make you a heretic, does not mean that you need to no longer call yourself a Christian. And so if you're in that season of questioning, I think it can be um, a lifeline to find out about these other perspectives, because maybe there is something there that you can hold to, even if the, the tradition that's more familiar to you has become uncomfortable um, or, or somewhere that you, where you can't stay with, you know, intellectual or spiritual integrity. Um, the other audience, and, and this is where um, certainly in the past and then, you know, to some extent, even now I would place myself, um, would be Christians who are, are not necessarily in that season of questioning. Um, maybe you're, you're totally happy with where you are in your denomination, your congregation, whatever, um, generally in a, you know, sort of a, a copacetic place of faith, um, but, but not terribly aware of uh, sort of the, this great breadth within uh, Christianity. I think Protestants especially, we've done a, a bad job of uh, educating ourselves about church history. Um, perhaps when we sort of threw out the saints, we, we threw out a lot of the, the history altogether. Um, and so, like, I know for, for me, I grew up in, in Christian high schools. There was a, a full range of, of denominations, even, even a Greek Orthodox kid in my class. And I could not have told you what's the difference between us? Like, why do they go to a different church than I do? Um, how are our churches related? How are they different? Why does it matter? And that strikes me as a huge loss, um, you know, because especially when we have this sort of ignorance about other types of Christians, um, it becomes, we, that can tend to, to morph into like a suspicion, a wondering if they're really as Christian as we are. Um, and then that in turn makes it difficult to work with them, like to to be serving in our community, even on, on basic things like, you know, maybe running a, a food pantry or something where there's not like a lot of theological content, we still become sort of suspect um, of each other. And that I think is, is really uh, damaging for the, the body of Christ and not how we should be operating. And so for that audience, I was, um, and this is where a lot of these, these brief interviews with people from different um, and maybe more unusual traditions comes in, uh, was to just sort of introduce people to other parts of the church that we really ought to know about, um, that really, you know, are not so different from us, are not so strange. Yes, they have some different ideas, um, but, you know, Christians have always had lots of different ideas, and, and that's not something to to be afraid of. It's something to be engaged with, and, and perhaps we may learn something from their, their practices um, or their beliefs that, that is missing in our own tradition. What do you think is at the core of our, uh, maybe our lack of information of other, you know, Christian, at least Christian traditions and Christian denominations or, or fear or rejection of those things? Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I think part of it may have to do with um, just the way that times have changed so quickly in terms of 
transport and communication. Um, I always think about how, you know, within my neighborhood, there are like 20 churches that I could go to in uh, just a very small couple mile radius from all different denominations. And so I encounter all these options. Um, and that's, you know, not uncommon. Um, but a long time ago, well, not really that long ago, <laughs> but in the past, you, you would have just sort of gone to your local parish. Maybe you have two or three options that are in a, like a realistically accessible distance. Um, and there's just not as, there wasn't the same choice. There wasn't the same encounter with difference that we have all of the time now. And so we've had that switch where we're, we're coming into contact with, with this wider range of Christians more regularly and more easily. Um, but we haven't necessarily figured out how to do that well and how to, um, you know, actually engage with them in a positive way, as opposed to just sort of, you know, retreating to our own corners and, and being suspicious that, you know, maybe they're, they're not, shouldn't quite be counted as Christians. I think I mentioned in the book, for example, um, that in the, the churches where I was raised, we were not 100% sure that Catholics should be considered Christians. Um, it's the, you know, the largest denomination is a weird fit, but the largest denomination on the planet, and, and we weren't sure that, that they should be sort of counted in the club. Um, and that sort of thing, I think, is, is uh, really unfortunate and something that can be avoided if we can take the time to, to find out about um, these, you know, other partners in our faith. Well, I, I like how you broke each question up into varying perspectives on the matter. Brian McLaren has called this a, a generous orthodoxy. So what mm-hmm. made you go this route? Um, I don't know if I can point to anything specific. I, I would say part of it has, comes from my, my own uh, sort of wrestling with some of, not all, but certainly some of these, these questions um, in, in young adulthood. Um, and that it, it was in some cases more difficult to sort of figure out, uh, like what are the, the different perspectives here? What are the options here? Um, because in, for the most part, when people are going to write a book on a subject, they, they write about the view that they hold and that they, um, believe to be true. And, and so they advocate for and explain that in the most detail. And that is good and right and makes sense. Um, unless of course, as a reader, you're, you're trying to find, uh, what else there might be. And so um, just recognizing that, you know, the, the average reader isn't going to have time to go to seminary, um, isn't necessarily sure where to begin research when they're, they're coming up on one of these questions. Um, I was hoping to, to provide something for, for that person to, to be able to explore um, with relative ease. Hmm. I wonder if you might share what you discovered by presenting and researching multiple sides to a question? You know, it varied a lot by question. There, there were some where I was uh, already coming into this fairly familiar with, with sort of the, the different perspectives for, for whatever reason. Um, there were some where I found out that my, my own views were uh, woefully inadequate, <laughs> um, verging on, on stereotype perhaps. The, the one I always think of in that regard was, um, sanctification and especially sort of the, the Methodist Wesleyan perspective on that, which talks about how um, perfection is possible in this life. Uh, I'd sort of always laughed at that, like, yeah, we're, we're obviously not going to be perfect. Like, what are they on about? Um, and of course, it's a, it's a much more 
nuanced views in that and perfection in, in that concept doesn't mean um, like Wesley very John Wesley very specifically said you know it doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes or that you're not going to have um, you know errors that you make because of ignorance or um, you know confusion or whatever the case may be and so uh, so for me writing about these these different perspectives was a clarifying exercise as well. Um, even after having come through seminary, there was a, a good bit where um, my own knowledge was not what it should have been um, about places where, where people don't think the same way that I do. Hmm. It's powerful to, to consider. And it's, I think it's becoming such a generational thing, you know, um, I think our generation, assuming we're kind of in the same age bracket, um, <laughs> that um, denominational lines um, and allegiance to those things. It's not that they don't matter, but we see the worth and depth um, behind a multiplicity of traditions. Um, now that's not to say there's not a particular tradition we're just going to distance ourselves from because, you know, those are the crazy ones. But um, I think it, I think it's uh, leading to a healthier place in Christendom that we're willing to embrace um, these unique traditions and theological perspectives while at the same time we are still living in this polarizing uh, society and the religious landscape in which lines are being drawn based on creeds and decisions on stances on particular um, matters and conversations. So um, I found your work to be encouraging, I guess, in a roundabout way. Um, oh, thank you. And it, yeah, it is an, it is a sort of a difficult thing, right? Because on the one side, like the, the division and the disagreement is not a, a positive thing. Like, you know, and it, I think in part of the, the thing, part of what will be wonderful about the resurrection is that we'll, we'll all be united on these questions. Like we'll, we'll all agree. There won't be this division that exists now. Um, you know, now we know in part, but then we'll know in whole. But on the other hand, given that this is the, the circumstance in which we find ourselves, um, I think that it's important to sort of figure out how to negotiate this well and how to um use it to our advantage insofar as that's possible, how to, how to make this something that can be an asset in some ways, uh, especially when people are, are struggling with these questions um, to be able to say to them, like, you can change your mind on this and still be well inside the church. Like this is not a question over which you need to lose your faith. Hmm. I wonder if you might speak to what, you know, what we can say to local church pastors who, might have the same perspective as you do, but as doing, they're doing the the work alongside congregations that maybe um, don't have the space and don't have the mental capacity or the willingness to say it's okay to ask those questions and wrestle with sometimes the gray and not the black and white on the issue. Yeah, I always think pastors are in a very difficult position on this, um, especially if you have a denominational affiliation where you know there's. Um, you know, even setting aside your own convictions, obviously you want to be, be teaching what you the, the truth insofar as you know it. Um, but then add on top of that, you know, sort of denominational guidelines for for what is the the right theology to be taught in that church. It, it becomes tricky, and it's hard to to deal with these questions well. Um, the main thing that I would say is uh, that as tempting as it is to to want to not deal with the questions because in, in sort of hopes that it will keep people in your pews, the more important thing is that they stay in a pew than, than your pew. 
Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned, I'm expecting twins. Like if my children come to me 15, 20 years down the line and say, you know, we just can't be Mennonites anymore. We are going to go be Lutherans or something. Um, you know, I, I would prefer that they would stay with, with our denomination, right? But I would infinitely prefer that they go be Lutherans or Catholics or Baptists or whatever the case may be, than that they cease to be Christians. Um, and so sort of reframing um, the possible consequence in that way of, of refusing, or well, I, I, refusing is probably too strong a word, but of failing to, to deal with these questions well, uh, I think can be helpful. Um, to think about the, the the possibility of someone moving to a different congregation, to a different different denomination, as opposed to them moving just outside of faith entirely because they they didn't have their questions addressed in a way that was helpful to them. And I also think that perhaps um, there's an advantage in confronting the questions sort of before the crisis happens, um, and so. I know that some that the my book has been used in some like small group house church studies and some youth groups, and I think that there's a, a big advantage in exploring this, um, yeah, before the crisis happens, be, so that when when it when someone does reach a sort of a, um, a that period of questioning in their faith, that they're already aware that there is some space to explore. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be quite such a, a, a traumatic and high pressure experience where um, pastoring them becomes, you know, far more difficult um, and, and, and far more delicate of a process in that moment. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You said the original title of the book was uh, 200 Million Ways to Follow Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Tell us uh, more about this original title and what you were going for. Well, so it was uh, based on, on the math of, like, if you took one option from each of the, like, 17 or so uh, issue-based chapters, in, you know, in theory, if you, you landed on one choice from each, how many different possible combinations were there? And it was somewhere in that range. I think we we rounded because the, the full number would have like taken the five minutes to say. Um, and so, you know, of course there are realistically, it would not be a simple math problem because there are some viewpoints that sort of, you know, tie into the others. And, and so just any random combination might be incoherent as a full theological system. But the idea is to communicate that um, n not sort of like this multiple choice 
free for all, make your own truth relativism, because I think there is a there is a truth, there is a, a correct answer to each of these questions that we're exploring um, in the book. But to communicate that that there there has also been um, this long history of of disagreement and debate within the church, and that Christians have never really since the beginning agreed on a, a single way. Of, of what following Jesus should look like and what the theological content of that should be. And of course, there are core, uh, you know, Christian dogma um, beliefs that, that sort of all Christians uh, to be considered Orthodox do share. But beyond that, there's a, a wide range of questions where, where we have not um, shared the same ideas, the same beliefs uh, throughout the entire, the entire sweep of church history. And so um, we didn't end up with that book or with that title, the, the marketing people didn't think that it was the way to go, and, and perhaps they were right. Um, but but that was the I- idea and, and uh, what we were hoping to communicate there. Hmm. From the book, what was your favorite question to contemplate? Um, I, I usually point towards the, the chapter on atonement theology, um, just because that's long been a, an interest of mine. Um, it's what I ended up writing my my thesis on at seminary, and I think it's something that we neglect to talk about explicitly um, in the way that we should. Uh, you know, the, the question of how the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, it, how that makes salvation possible, sort of the, the mechanism of that, uh, seems very, very basic and in a sense like something we don't even necessarily need to talk about because it's so core to the the Christian story um but again this is something that Christians haven't agreed on um there have been a number of of competing and I would say uh in some cases incompatible explanations for that um over the last 2,000 years and so um I, I find those explanations really fascinating and uh and also the the sloppiness with which we we sometimes treat this issue um, really unfortunate. You'll sometimes see, especially uh, like in selection of of worship songs, churches can be really um, messy about this. Where one song will be singing from one perspective on the atonement, the next song the lyrics are from another perspective. They're very different, telling quite a different story, maybe even incompatible stories, and yet no one especially notices. Um, so I like always enjoy drawing attention to that and talking about um, what exactly is the story that we're telling about how uh, salvation happens and, and how the, the death and resurrection of Jesus are effective for us to be saved. Hmm. Was there a particular question that, um, I don't know, maybe wasn't your favorite to, to research, but you felt like you needed to write on it? Hmm. I mean, just given, you know, sort of the climate of debate about it, the, the chapter on gay marriage was obviously a difficult one. Um, in terms of like technical difficulty, <laughs> probably uh, the the chapter on, on God's providence and foreknowledge, um, you know, the whole conceit of the book was to explain each topic in, in like a short digestible format usually like 350 words for a perspective and that's it or less it is very hard to explain something like 
Calvin's perspective on on foreknowledge and and predestination in 350 words and to do it fairly, um, you know, to do it some reasonable amount of justice. Um, so that was that chapter was a a bear. <laughs> um, I yeah, and it it varied a lot. I, I think that uh, the other the other chapter that I would maybe point to as being a little bit more difficult is the one on eschatology, what happens at the end of the world, because I was trying to avoid too much like you know heavy theological jargon that might not be familiar to to the average reader. And with that subject, there's just a lot of words that you can only use, like the long, complex word, um, especially all the millennialisms, so much going on there. Uh, so those those three, I, I think, are the ones I'd point to in that regard. Hmm. And just avoid Calvin at all costs, just because. So, <laughs> so um, what question didn't make the cut or what question is missing from the book? Oh man. Um, one thing I, I considered in the last year or two is that uh, I think there's an increasing debate about uh, transgender people um, that's that's coming up uh, in a way that I don't know. It, it wasn't on my radar in the same way when I was putting together the list of topics several years ago, um, and I I still think at this point that it was probably not that that conversation was not at a place to include, uh, if only in terms of a lack of resources to be able to recommend to people to read more on the subject, which I include at the end of every chapter. Um, So maybe, you know, if there's another edition of the book 10 years down the line, that's something that would be included. Um, Beyond that, I'm I'm not sure. There there hasn't been... uh, you know, I've asked people this question also, and I haven't really gotten a consistent response of, you know, something else that people think is is missing. Um, so, yeah, I think just as sort of the, the conversation of American Christianity goes, perhaps there will be um, additions that, that seem obviously necessary five or 10 or 15 years down the line. But at this point, I'm, I'm fairly happy with the list. Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously, as your publisher is listening, there is plenty of other content to write about. It's just you want to <laughs> write about something in a different flavor of a book. Um, it's been out for about a year by the time the podcast airs. Uh, so what kind of feedback have you gotten from your readers? Positive, um, especially from uh, younger younger readers, I think. And that's something I expected. Um, but readers who are are sort of engaging with their faith for themselves for the first time, you know, perhaps after growing up in church and, and sort of taking things in, but not really um, making it their own at an intellectual level. Um, for for them, I think it has been very helpful. I just got a, a report from a, a youth group in, I want to say Illinois, but that might be false. Um, where the the youth group voted on what I think six or seven chapters to to discuss, and uh, apparently the the chapter on on violence was the the really hot topic for them that they they really got into. So that was uh, interesting and encouraging feedback to get. Um, 
I mean, especially as a, a Mennonite, we're always always trying to talk about nonviolence. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been mostly positive. I did I did get feedback from one Catholic reader. Apparently, I slightly mischaracterized um, holy orders, who it applies to, um, or, or slightly misused the term. I can't remember the details now, but um, of, of all the things that, that could have been criticized, I was... I was okay with with a, a you know relatively small and um, not consequential to a major point uh, mistake like that. Um, so yeah, I've been I've been encouraged by the response, and uh, I, I hope and pray that it it is as useful as I've um, you know more widely as it is to the people whom I've specifically heard from. So you're saying that there's always a critic in a crowd, and you cannot make everybody happy. Probably, although, I'm, to be honest, I expected a lot more pushback than I got. Oh. Um, you know, cr- Christian Twitter in particular can be extremely <laughs> vicious. <laughs> um, Christian Twitter. And I don't know if they just haven't found out about me. Um, that's certainly a possibility, or if they were uh, pleased with it. But, uh, but yeah, I... I I, I expected more more dissatisfaction really than there has been. Um, and so that, that seems like a good thing. <laughs> well, hopefully for our audience when this airs, all you hear is positive affirmation uh, for, for your wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book. So besides um, bringing two literal lives into this world uh, in the next couple of weeks, <laughs> what's next for you? Well, um, I, was, I was hoping already at this point to, to be working um, more seriously on a, a second book proposal, but uh, yeah, the, the whole twins thing has sort of gotten in the way of that. Um, but my my hope for second book is a, a project that I'm still planning, but that would focus a lot on um, cultivation of community life, uh, both in like a, a personal and a theological sense, um, but also sort of looking at um, some of the history and and politics of why our communities are the way they are. I think there's been a, a, a spate of um, books, Christian books, that deal with uh, the the personal and theological side of things. Um, and so, what I'm hoping to bring new to the conversation is is more of that um, history and political side. So, looking at things like um, the history of redlining. Um, the the history of how uh, you know when when the government in the mid century time was laying out highways how they would frequently choose like the black neighborhood to to build a highway through a city and then that's what would be demolished and the community that would be destroyed um, so exploring things like that uh, that that very much shape the our cities and towns as we find them today and as we're trying to live and minister in them um, but that may not be so so familiar um you know especially if you're a transplant to an area and just don't know that local history hmm. for those that want to follow bonnie you can find her on twitter of course at bonniechristian.com bonnie thank you for well first of all thank you for doing this interview despite the fact that you have two lives that are taking up your lung capacity um, <laughs> but more importantly thank you for inviting us to see that it is okay to wrestle with and see all sides to difficult questions Yeah, thank you, and and thank you again for having me. 
Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.